Hello and welcome to Plot Trists. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing The Charmer Without a Cause by Katherine Grant. This was published in 2023 and is the third book in the Preston series. And full disclosure, we did receive a complimentary copy to review. This is also kind of a perfect book for March. And we will talk about why. I'm actually Ireland. In... The answer is Ireland. You don't have to be cute about it. <laughs> yes, I've been doing a lot of Ireland stuff on Instagram lately. So I was inspired. It is, you know, what, nine days till St. Patrick's? 11 days till St. Patrick's? I don't know what today is. You can't math. I can't math. I... Let's read the book jacket. We can do that. Everyone knows that a happy marriage begins with a lot of money and one good lie. When Benjamin Preston falls in love with Lady Lydia Devereux, at first sight, his family thinks this is the start of yet another of his failed courtships. Benjamin is almost as surprised as they are when Lydia encourages his attention and even agrees to marry him. His family suspects she is after his newly inherited 10,000 pounds, but Benjamin holds out hope that at last, he has found his true love. Lydia can't help finding Benjamin attractive. After all, he is handsome, kind, and compassionate. But her heart belongs to Ireland and to an Irish rebel who died for the cause of freedom. Now, Lydia is determined to marry for wealth and political influence so she can help free Ireland from Britain's rule. Even if that means trapping Benjamin in a loveless marriage. As their courtship progresses, Lydia and Benjamin find themselves caught in a web of lies, plots, and unquenchable lust. The only question is, can they help Ireland without breaking each other's hearts? I kind of love, like, I actually really liked all the, like, Ireland. Like, Ireland. Yes. It's, it's perfect. It's really perfect. I like this jacket. Me too. I'm into it. Uh, so as usual, we generated a random number between 1 and 50 and then wrote our own summaries using that number as the word count. This episode, that number is 28. Meg, you want to go first? I can go first. Lydia needs money for a free Ireland and her lost love. Benjamin's got money and he's fine with a free Ireland. Not so much the lost love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. Benjamin as a character has sort of been not deliberately, but waiting for love to have direction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a trait that is very often criticized in heroines. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting to see it like gender swapped here. There, I, I think that Catherine Grant does a lot of really interesting things in this couple. I, I don't think it's, I mean, I think it's deliberate. It is deliberate. I don't think it's something where you'd say, this is gender swapped. But I really feel like she's taking a close look at romance conventions and saying, why does this work in a hero or a heroine? Why doesn't this work in a hero and heroine? Maybe it does. I There were a lot of things that I know we've talked about as tropetacular, and we'll get to this in tropes, that she just deliberately did the opposite. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, she knows her... Romance history. Oh, yeah. 
And she's not making fun of it. She's just like thinking of how she can do things differently. Intellectually, I love her books. Me too. All right. Uh, so my 28 word summary. Seamus didn't quite say it, but he definitely loved Ireland and Lydia. Benjamin has loved a lot of people, but true love just hits different, right? Right, Lydia? Um, if you're wondering what Lane Summary is referring to, there will be a photo in the Instagram post about this book. Yeah, so I went to Ireland, I've been a couple of times, but most recently um, for my best friend's 30th birthday, and we went to um, one of the jails in Dublin and did a tour, and they had artifacts and mementos and belongings to the revolutionaries who were arrested during the Easter Rising. So historically, way, 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 way later than this. And there's a really fascinating figure in Irish history who uh, went by the Countess. She'd been married to a guy who faked being like a Polish count or Why Earl. Um, and then they split up and she ended up in Ireland and she was the one woman condemned to death. And she got off and went on to become Ireland's first female secretary of labor, I think. Anyway, her life is totally fascinating. And I may have gotten some of those details wrong because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But there was a little artifact um, in the collection of this jail. And on the back of a matchbook, one of the other co-revolutionaries who was actually put to death, he didn't get out of his death sentence. And the note he scribbled just said to the countess, I loved Ireland and you. And I have, from the moment I saw that, because I knew Meg at the time and I came back and I was like, a romance novel needs to be written about these characters. Like she's got, a, like her whole life was this crazy whirlwind and all these men were falling at her feet, including one who was put to death for being an Irish rebel. And so when Meg told us about this book, from the minute she started talking about it, I was like, oh my God, this is my note. This is my note made a book. And she was like, right. she was like, was it, is it the Countess? And I was like, well, she is an Earl's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> But it, I mean, it, it, I thought there were, I am not as up on Irish history, although I did just recently book, read a book about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, so I feel like I know more than I did six months ago. And I, I do think that this book captures a certain, a really certain aspect of like Irish revolution and the whole idea of like Irish home rule. I think it was really interesting to see in a Regency. Well, it's also a period of time that I think is often really glossed over in Irish history because I've taken a lot of Irish history classes and, you know, been to Irish museums. And this is after Irish law has been taken over by the British. But before you see a lot of the manifestations of rebellion that popularize or that have been dramatized in popular culture. Mm -hmm. So it's this period where it's an oppressed people without a government, but where like, I mean, the ribbon men aren't, I think, very well known compared to other revolutionaries in Irish history. Right. I, I think it's interesting to compare with other historical romances because you do see Irish characters in historical romance you don't see a ton set in ireland unless you're looking at like medieval romance and even then that's unusual 
Well, and even when you do see Irish um, people in romance novels, they're often Irish aristocrats. Yes, exactly. That's what I was... This book gets at, we're like not quite the same as the common Irishman. Exactly. So like in um, the first Ravenel's book, Cold-Hearted Rake, Kathleen is Irish, but she has been raised in England. Like she likes horses and she remembers Ireland fondly, but she's not... She's not out for a free Ireland, you know. I also don't think she's Catholic. No, I don't think she is either. I mean, the thing that's most Irish about her is that her name is Kathleen. Well, Meg, that is pretty Irish. I mean, to be fair. And then, like, we have, like, Cam and Kev. Uh But they're Rom. Right, they're Rom. They were not raised in Ireland. They are Irish nobility. Mm -hmm. But, again, they don't have, like, Irish identity right. or and of course all yes I'm pulling like most of my characters from Lisa Kleypas I apologize but like in Hello Stranger Ethan is Irish but he's raised in London again right so we have Irish we get Irish quote, unquote, characters. We don't get Irish burgers essentially yeah yeah exactly so anyway Interesting, very interesting. And then this book continues that because Lydia is of the Irish aristocracy, but she has a very different mindset and has actually, you know, there are actual Irish characters who are not of the aristocracy that appear in the book as well. That was a long introduction before we got to tropes. The main trope of this book is the fortune hunter trope. Yes. Lydia is the fortune hunter. You do see women who have to marry for money in books. So this isn't like a total gender swap. Right. But what I think is most interesting about this one, and it's so interesting that it appeared in one and a half of our summaries. I don't think you spoke to it exactly the way that I talked about money, but she's, her entire purpose is a free Ireland. She's interested in his money, not for what it can do for her, not for what it can do for her family, but for what it can do for the Irish people. But what I love about Catherine Grant is she doesn't go out and say it's because women don't have fucking independence or the ability to do things for themselves. But the way all of the conversations about pin money happen, that's what's underscoring it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So anyway, fortune hunter trope, but again, there's a little bit of a twist on it. I, it's actually very interesting because I do not love the fortune hunter trope when it's just fortune hunting. But when it's fortune hunter trope that's got a little twist on it, it, I think it's one of my favorite tropes. It's also really interesting to get into the semantics of it. It's also the, like, how much money and why and what they're willing to settle for otherwise. Mm-hmm. When it's just somebody looking for a big pile of money and dismissive of the person attached and they're trying to save their family pile, like, I'm just not that sympathetic to it. She's talking about, like, tens of pounds mm-hmm. here or there. She's not willing to marry someone she fucking hates for it. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a noble cause. Right. Like there's a lot of factors that I think make it more interesting here than just like I'm resigned. I'm going to have to marry someone I hate to do this thing that I don't even really care about. Yeah. I mean, like one of my favorite fortune twisted fortune hunter books is um secrets of sir richard kenworthy yes there he's not looking for a fortune but it's the same thing it's like i've got to marry this person under false pretenses mm-hmm. i don't want to hurt her i don't want to hurt myself that much to know i cause. want to be like mm-hmm. a good person i want to spend time with yes so anyway there you go trope he falls in love all the time. And as such, he falls first. He sees her from across a room and he is like, that's her. And this is only the eighth time he's done that. <laughs> I love this. I love this when it appears as a trope. It's so great. Me too. Here's the thing. This is a very objectively good book that had me thinking about a lot of different things that happen in romance that we will absolutely get into. It wasn't really fun. Mm. Like, the plight of the Irish is depressing as fuck. Mm-hmm. Women not having rights is depressing as fuck. Women not having rights and having dead lovers and then taking on their causes and, like, not quite fitting in and shaping their whole identity around a cause that's not theirs. Fascinating. Not fun. Mm-hmm. The only bits of levity in this book come from Benjamin just really liking women. <laughs> It, I mean, and of course, anything that makes me think of Loretta Chase and the Carsington brothers makes me happy. And of course, I thought of Alistair. She's got cute. an older spinster sister who was jilted and therefore is, you know, not just uh, definitely going to be a spinster and potentially wants to live with her and just needs to get out from under their parents' thumb. Mm-hmm. Lydia and her sister have a best friend who is also recently married in this book and her husband has gone off to Scotland and there is clearly trouble in their marital situation. And it is heavily implied that the resolution to that is going to be a future book. I have seen this 75,000 times. Yes. I am actually, I was actually very intrigued by this. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, we have seen this 75,000 million times. True. I've never seen Catherine Grant do it. And Catherine Grant manages to take things you think you know and just do them differently uh-huh so i was like wait and also i was like i thought this was the prestons i was like is she gonna be widowed and married to preston and then i was like no that i don't think that's gonna happen because it's a marriage in crisis this book is definitely about the prestons right like mm-hmm. mr preston the father appears a bunch the two older sisters who appeared in the previous books in this series appear a bunch um, but she didn't like bludgeon you over the head with the Preston family tree. So I'm not even a hundred percent sure after just reading this one without rereading the previous books, if there are available Preston boys there and how are. old they are. There are. Well, that's, that's the, that's the question. They're not that, I don't think they're quite old enough yet. Yeah. Cause I mean, so, Benjamin is pretty young. Like how old is he? 25? 25. 25. And he's the oldest right. uh, boy. So... But you don't know what kind of time jump we're looking at. I, I've got a lot of questions. Yeah. No, I, I do too. I'm actually like, we don't know what I would be really excited about. Yes. A spinoff novella. That is the perfect answer. I know. I just don't know. There was, I have faith that Catherine Grant could write a novella I want to read. Uh-huh. What she does better than almost anyone is weave together really complicated plots 
with a lot of different characters and elements in a way that feels like potato chip reading. Mm -hmm. So I think a novella would almost be a waste of her talents. Yes, but I want to read it, though. I know, me too. Uh, Okay, any other tropes? No, because what I want to talk about even more is the trope she subverts. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot about how they're either both really tall or there's a huge height disparity with her being a tiny little thing. Uh She towers over him. Uh-huh. I and loved so, it so much. You I want to know what I loved? And he's, like, super into her height. Oh, my God. I loved how he saw her, and he's like, she is a goddess. She is amazing. He goes over, and he's just like, of course I'm shorter than her, because I just need to worship her at all times and look up to her. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy. I love it. She is totally defined by an ex-lover who neither comes back from the dead nor gets his image in her mind's eye destroyed in the course of the book oh my god lane i was so nervous about seamus because i was so ready for seamus to like show up in the third act me too he was gonna show up and like be a total asshole or something or she was gonna find out that he was married and like had three kids and all kinds of stuff i mean spoiler alert except not really you're told he's dead in the first chapter and he's dead He's actually dead. There's never a threat that he's not dead. I'm just so used to romance novels where any ex who gets this much page time, page time must reappear, even if you think they're dead. Oh my God, he was transported. And I was like, this is going to be a Nick Gentry situation. Yep. You know? <laughs> like, I was like, oh shit. But no, thank God. Thank no, um, Lord of romance novels. She has a family who doesn't understand. And I think a different author would have made the conflict with her family a major effing deal. Mm-hmm. Not really. I don't know. It, they, I, yes, I was, um, I was very into how Catherine Grant worked with romance novel conventions in this book. Same. I'm always very impressed by Catherine Grant. Mm-hmm. I agree. This plot was also really interesting. So we've got this fortune hunter plot, but they get married relatively early in the text. And then we move on to basically like how she's going to support the revolution now that she's married. Like her whole... I I thought that this was really well handled, too. Her whole goal was, so, like, Seamus dies, and then her whole goal is, like, okay, I need to find money so that I can keep his memory alive and work towards the cause that was so dear to his heart. Right. And so her goal is, got to marry a man with money who will let me use it for something that he might not be super into. And she does that, but once she's married and she does have access to these funds, she's then like, okay, well, what do I do? Now I have the money, how do I use it? And I thought that was a really interesting take on the, I have a goal, I'm going to work for it, I'm going to get it. Because this happens in romance novels too, all the time. And usually the goal is what's keeping the hero away from the heroine. Right. He wants to buy a house and he is a part of the dowry and of someone else's thing. And so he has to give up marrying this, you know, other woman and getting her land so he, he won't have the land anymore. This I've seen this in so many books, right? Mm-hmm. And so he has to learn I have to give up this goal so that I can embrace true love. 
And or he says, I have achieved this goal, but now what do I do? It's empty because it's not with the person that I love. And Lydia achieves her goal, but then she's like, oh, I don't know what to do with it now. She also learns a lesson about centering her, centering herself in someone else's fight and someone else's narrative mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting and I had never seen depicted in a romance novel before. Mm-hmm. You know, as Meg was... mentioned, she is a Protestant English woman. Mm-hmm. She, she may passionately believe in the cause, but... And she she's... feels like she was entrusted with the cause by the passing of her Irish Catholic lover. And she, like many people do, centers herself in the narrative and gets swept away by injustice. Mm-hmm. And she, both through Benjamin and the Irish revolutionary she's keeping company with, learns a hard lesson about, like, what's really needed of an ally. Yes. Yep. I mean, it was it was, it was great. And it didn't feel... It also didn't feel like you as the reader were learning a lesson with her. No, it did not. Correct. Which, thank you. Like, thank you, Catherine Rand. And then the actual crescendo sort of proved them both wrong, even after learning that, like, it was them being good allies, but it was also both of them taking on roles that they sort of had said they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. All very good. It was great. It was all really good. I often get really, really, really annoyed in romance novels where the conflict at the core of the relationship is I don't trust you don't still love this dead ex-lover. Mm-hmm. And the a dead ex-lover is thought about during sex scenes and it like acts. I didn't hate it here. Mm-hmm. I really felt like you were asked to think about the realities of marriage in this era, which romance novels never ask you to do. Marriage for love was not a concept that really existed during that time. this time. It's not to say that people didn't love each other. It's to say that, like, the concept of romance as the basis for marriage, especially in the aristocracy, would not have been nearly as, like, conventional <laughs> as we think it is when we're reading these romance novels. So, like, to what degree she promises to be true to him. She promises to be a helpmeet and a partner, and she genuinely likes him. He has this vision in his head that they're marrying for love. But before he proposes, she's never said, I love you. Mm -hmm. So like he's created this whole narrative about what their relationship is in his head that does not match what she's told him or what a marriage of the time would expect. And then both of them sort of articulating expectations versus reality, knowing that the backdrop is what the time really would have been like was fascinating to me. Mm hmm. This is another subversion of the trope, too, right? Yes. Because so many times in, in romance novels, the resolution of the conflict is not they're getting married. It's not they save each other's lives. It's that he admits that he loves her. Right? Right. And the resolution of the conflict in this book is that Lydia admits that she loves Benjamin. But it's not some, like, bullshit, I'm protecting myself. Whatever, like... They knew each other for, like, a month when they got married. Yes. It's not like she was sitting here, like, making declarations about, like, yes, she was saying, like, when we met, I was still being very motivated by my love for this person, and I can't imagine loving anyone else. But she was also saying, 
you don't love me. You've known me for three weeks. Mm-hmm. I, I also, I fucking loved how both of them had had young love. Mm-hmm. And their young loves were so different. Yes. Both in terms of who they were as people and what society expected of those relationships, but also in like, he had a lot of flights of fancy. She had like the heart stopping, rip your clothes off in a field. Oh my God, I feel consumed by this. And even in those moments, she reflects back on knowing it was doomed. Mm-hmm. And not in a like, in a better life, she would have been able to be with him. Mm-hmm. In a like, she never fully articulated, but in like a sense of knowing it was a fever dream. In in a better life, he would still be alive, basically. Right. Not we would be together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that plays into too, like, she finally admits that she had this young love and Benjamin is like, Oh, no big deal. Me too. He's like, it's not like you keep any mementos of him. And she's like, Oh yeah, no, just this letter that I keep next to my heart. (laughs) He also, I realized at one point in the book that he only died like six months before the events of the book. It's not like this is some like long ago thing she's been carrying with her like a war widow for me like he is very freshly buried uh-huh in the ocean i mean yeah burial at sea is a thing yeah freshly buried here you go <laughs> um let's see oh i mean i think that plays into something actually that we say i mean i say for sure that i don't necessarily want I definitely don't need it and I don't necessarily want it in my romance novels. And that is historical accuracy, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to language or especially motivations on the part of the female main characters. Right. However, I really liked the emphasis on historical accuracy when it came to the politics Mm -hmm. and country of Ireland in this book. I thought it was very well researched and really interesting. I did too. With one little quibble. The speech that Peel gives at the end of the book was tonally so different than Catherine Grant's writing. Mm. Even I flipped to the author's note to be like, is this a quote instead of her writing? Uh huh. And it pretty much was. And it was <laughs> like she said she made some edits to it, but I was like, yeah, it it didn't it was historically accurate, but it sounded so anachronistic within the text. Mm-hmm. Yes, like even just the way Max like gave his speech versus the dialogue put in Peel's mouth mm-hmm. was like, oh, ma'am. Yeah, 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 yeah. It took me out of the moment a little. Yeah, but like, I... that's the one time. Right? <laughs> Ugh, you mean she made a politician talk like a politician of the time? God. Yeah, instead of a sexy romance novel hero? Weird. Jeez. I don't know, man. I don't know if I can keep reading these books. <laughs> no, but I, I I felt like I learned something. And I know that sounds really silly, but no, I, I do feel like I learned things that I didn't know about the era and the politics, which was great. Yeah. Um, one other very, very small quibble. So as we mentioned, she's got a dead lover. Said dead lover's brother is alive and working with her. 
that relationship to me needed a little bit more. It, it, their interactions felt awkward. I felt like I needed a backstory to understand, like, were they close or did mm-hmm. like they only start becoming friends after Seamus died? Like, mm-hmm. I, I needed to understand what their dynamic would have been outside of the desperation of this specific moment to yeah. have a lot of the things that were meant to be really emotionally resonant, like, work. That's fair. He is like a D character. In terms of how frequently he shows up, like it's a minor thing, but I that was the one I really wanted. Catherine Grant does a great job wrapping up everything mm-hmm. and like really making you feel satisfied with where the characters are left. And so it's just it's very it stands out more than it would if she were less talented when something is underdeveloped. Yeah. That makes sense. Speaking of characters, I was I really liked seeing Max and Ellen again because I we didn't see them in in the Governance right. Without Guilt, and I love that book. I love them, and I really liked seeing them here. And I really like seeing that Max like did you know get his ideas tempered a little bit. Yeah, it was so great. I really liked it. <laughs> Having him be like the elder statesman was really funny. Oh my god, it was so great. I really liked it, and. That's the other thing I also thought worked really well in this book is that Lydia, she kind of knew that she was marrying into this family that had like unconventional ideas, but she didn't realize when she married into this family that like they would be like, yeah, we agree with a free Ireland too. convince us, tell us why. And she's like, wait a minute, this family is amazing. Yeah. So it was. It really worked for me in that idea of a marriage of convenience slash fortune hunter way. Like, I'm going to marry this person for reasons other than affection. Mm-hmm. And then you realize after you're already in the situation that actually maybe it's a really great situation. Right. I loved it. I also I loved, it. like, this is, like, it's silly, but he, upon having his father say something like, oh, well, you know, Benjamin's not going to marry for a while. And Benjamin's like, I'm in love with this girl. She's not going to last on the London marriage, Mart. If I want her, I got to, like, make my move. And he was right. Uh-huh. But the flip side of that is they were strangers when they got married. Mm-hmm. And I just, I loved, like, the way that was shown and not spoken. Well, and it was, I don't know, I just really, I really liked, too, that this is the moment where where Benjamin asserts his independence from his family. Yes. Is it's not even his father's not telling him to do something. His father's not directing him to do something. He's not like outright defying him. He's not saying your ideas are wrong. He's just, oh, kind of over here is like, he's like, oh, really? I'm not going to marry soon, huh? And he's like, just marches out of the house and he's like, I'm proposing today, you know? Except he like more marches out of the house and like, I'm still going to keep courting her. And then he shows up and he's like, She's unhappy being courted by other people. I'm going to propose. It felt very impulsive in a very good way. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. It was great. It was really yeah. great. And I I mean, it worked because we've all been there. Our parents say this thing and you're like, oh, really? <laughs> we'll see about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, not about proposing necessarily. but I hope not. No. Content warnings. Look, 
ultimately, I do not think this book has any of the things we generally like to flag. I think the only one in terms of like, you might not like this book if you really like your romance fluffy. Yeah, like, I, I really don't think there's anything here. There's no infidelity. There's no like violence against women. There's no sexual assault. There's historic injustices of the time. But frankly, like neither of the main characters are per like perpetrating or victims of those things. I think the number one reason you might be like, I might want to skip this one is if you want a fluffy love story where the characters are just super enamored with each other the whole time and you just get to read about them figuring out how best to be in love. Those are often my favorite romance novels. I'm not judging that statement, but like there's a lot of heavy shit here. Mm -hmm. Which it's very weird for a book to feel this heavy without real violence and darkness. Mm -hmm. I think that's what kind of like has taken me about back about this book is like Ireland's depressing at this time. <laughs> and there's a moment where she finally realizes Benjamin might be on the road to like reconciling uh -huh. who she really is with the idea he had of her when they got married. And she said like his smile was like tinged with sadness, but sometimes hope is a little sad. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm bastardizing it, but that was effectively the quote. And I remember reading that. And I was like, that is true. That is also a level of melancholy I'm not always looking for in my romance novels. Mm -hmm. So like that would be my one like, hey, you might not like this if melancholy isn't a word you want, ever want to feel. Lane, did you say that you read the author's note? The first two paragraphs. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to clarify that because I was like, wait a minute. I got to the part where she was like, yes, I stole Robert Peel's speech from an actual speech he gave. And I was like, I could tell. <laughs> That's true. Catherine Grant, she makes me read a little bit of the author's note. I want, like, I'm a full kill the artist person. I know you are. <laughs> art, oh. For art's sake, your intention doesn't matter. You put the art out there. It's up to me to interpret. So interpret this for me, Lane. Was it sexy? Okay. This is a long, this is a long silence. <laughs> I did not like how much of the book they were not sexting. Correct. I agree with you because the sex that is on the page is quite sexy. It's just, at first it's real angsty. On her part, yes. On her part, and you know that. And then even when they've like sort of made up, they're still not fucking. Uh-huh. And then their makeup sex is extremely hot. Yep. But it's still tinged with sadness based on what is going on and why they have that in that moment. Wait, so his, he smiled and it seemed a little sad, but then it was also maybe hopeful. Are you saying this like sex was maybe a little sad, but also maybe hopeful? Yeah. It was like Schrodinger's vote on the Irish Rebel uh, Insurrection Act or whatever it was called. Schrodinger's vote on the Irish Insurrection Act. <laughs> I mean, I understand what you're saying. I think more... That makes one of us. I think more romance... I understand it. It took me a long time to understand it. But I did get it. <laughs> I think more romance novels should incorporate sex in a coat room in Parliament. Yeah, that's A plus. A plus for location. A plus. Fucking plus. 
If you want to know why this book is getting five stars from us, it's because they fuck in Parliament. I mean, that doesn't detract. <laughs> that was amazing. I like, I'm really glad I read this. Mm-hmm. Me too. I really, I really liked it. I, yeah. I mean, I, I came to write, sometimes I write our notes with like, I liked this. I didn't like this so much. This part was okay. And this one, all I have is stuff I loved. Like I didn't, I don't have another section in my notes. So. Sexy poor Ireland is a vibe. <laughs> Sexy poor Ireland. I mean, you're right. Like Ireland, I know this is terrible, but like Ireland is beautiful. I have been to Ireland once and I had an amazing time. Pubs are great. Irish politics are always depressing. Yeah. I mean, it's basically why U2 is famous. <laughs> and the cranberries. Yes, that's true. I mean, Oscar Wilde. <laughs> that's all you had to say. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, just bye. Just, just bye. <laughs>